This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So yes, the next seven weeks, uh, I've been given the class, as it were, to explore the seven-point mind training with you. So I'll be giving a series of talks, and I hope in the intervening weeks you'll be reflecting on the material. I'll lead some reflections on subsequent weeks on the material. And most of all, we'll be trying to put the contents of the mind training into practice. Because the purpose of the mind training teachings is to develop bodhicitta. There's no other reason for these teachings. It's a series of teachings to develop bodhicitta, the awakening mind, the mind or heart of enlightenment, the mind of complete openness, emptiness and great compassion. So we're going to be looking at two texts side by side as it were. One is by Atisha and one is by a Tibetan teacher called Geshe Chikawa Yeshe Dorje to give him his full title. I'll refer to him as Chikawa. <laughs> so, one text by Atisha. Atisha is said to be one of the founding founders of the mind training tradition. So he's uh, a great Indian teacher who spent the last couple of decades, I think, of his life in Tibet. And then the other text is a later Tibetan extrapolation, if you like, of that basic text by Chikawa, who was a 12th century teacher. I'm going to say a little bit about how the teaching arose, give you an overview of the seven points, and then explore point number one. So Atisha was a great Indian teacher, as I've said, and uh, he did go to Tibet for the last couple of decades of his life. Before that, he studied the mind-training teachings with his own teacher, Dharmakirti, who lived in Sumatra. So apparently, Atisha underwent a perilous sea journey to get to Sumatra from India, I'm quite sure of the geography of that, anyway. And they spent 12 years studying and practicing the Dharmakirti until, presumably, he felt he had some realisation of those teachings, had some realisation of bodhicitta, the awakening mind. And then later he took the teachings to Tibet. So originally, apparently, the material, the teachings of the mind training, were taught orally, if not secretly and esoterically. Atisha said it's easy to explain, but it's very hard to put into practice. So we'll do our best over the next seven weeks. So he taught primarily orally, and there's a kind of line of uh, a lineage of people that he passed the teachings on to. With lovely Tibetan names, Jong Tompa, Patawa, Langri Tangpa, and Sharawa. That's probably the end of my Tibetan. <laughs> So yes, a line of teaching. Now, Langri Tangpa's name you might be familiar with, some of you, uh, because he uh, received the mind-training teachings in this lineage, but he was the first person, <coughs> apparently, to write them down. And he wrote them down in a very particular form. He wrote them down in the form of the eight verses. So you might have come across the eight verses of Langri Tangpa. I know they were popular a few years ago and were studied, and there were talks about them. So the story of Chikawa is that he came across these teachings, these eight verses of Langritangpa. I'm not sure whether he heard them or he read them. I, I can't quite remember. Uh, but he was very, very struck by the fifth verse of the eight verses. And this verse says, When others out of jealousy treat me badly, with abuse, slander, and so on, 
I will learn to take on all loss and offer victory to them. So this had an enormous uh, impact on Chikawa. And what it means, I think, is when it says to take on all loss, it means to take on the loss, as it were, of feeling blamed, being upset, being slandered, being treated badly, without a desire to retaliate, without a desire to have revenge. Uh, so it's a very um, pithy, as it were, exposition of the perfection of patience of Kshanti. So no retaliation. But it's put in a very particular kind of way. So he's very, very struck by that teaching. And uh, he's so struck by it that he decides to find Langri Tangpa and study under him to learn uh, from this great teacher. Unfortunately, Langri Tangpa has died. So he does find his disciple Shirawa eventually. And he asks him, he says, if you want, uh, is it, how important is this teaching? How important is this, this verse, this one verse really? How important is this teaching? And Shirawa says, if you want to gain enlightenment, this practice is essential. And then Shikawa says, well, where does this teaching come from? What's its scriptural reference? He wants to know what its provenance is, as it were. Is it authentic? And uh, Shirawa says, well, it's from Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna, the great Indian pandit who was... Um, founder, if you like, of the Perfection of Wisdom school uh, in a, a very early Mahayana Buddhism. And it says, it comes from Nagarjuna's precious garland of advice for the king. May their negative actions ripen upon me, and may, may all my virtues ripen upon them. And that's the source. And when we come to subsequent weeks, I'll be talking a little bit about the main <laughs> practice of the seven-point mindfulness, the main method, which is a practice called Tonglen, which you, you've probably heard of the taking and the sending, the taking of the pain and the giving of the virtue. So you can see that that's reflected in those two lines. May their negative actions ripen upon me, may all my virtues ripen upon them. So you can see perhaps why it was taught orally. It's quite a different, uh, difficult practice to embrace. So Shikawa stays with Shirawa for also for 12 years. 12 years seems to be the time you need to study with someone, at least in those days. And then he taught the mind training, as well as its principal method, Tonglen, and he taught it apparently to lepers. He obviously presumably lived near a leper colony, and uh, he taught them the taking and the sending, and obviously the lepers were in great suffering, and apparently there were good results, and some of them were cured. He also had a sceptical brother, I have one of those too, <laughs> a sceptical brother, who uh, doesn't believe in, I don't know if he doesn't believe in the Dharma, he doesn't believe in the mind training, but he overhears Chikawa teaching the lepers, and also I think he has some sense that you know, something is happening, and so he decides secretly to have a go himself at the mind training teachings. And Chikawa begins to notice a change in his brother. So he thinks to himself, if even a sceptic can benefit, why keep these teachings secret? So he is the first person really to make the teachings more widely available. And he teaches uh, many, many people with the mind training. And uh, he writes down his own version of the mind training. So Atisha's verses are quite kind of condensed, the seven verses. You're going to go away with a copy of Atisha's text at the end of the evening. But Chikawa, uh, he both sort of essentializes those verses and he extrapolates them. And he extrapolates them into what's sometimes called slogans or aphorisms or sayings. So there are 57 or 59 pithy slogans, aphorisms or sayings distributed through the seven points of the mind training. Um, and that's quite, uh, it's why we're looking at both texts, because that text is quite interesting, looking at the slogans or the aphorisms. Uh, 
you can memorize the whole thing. You could try and memorize the whole thing. But even if you don't do that, if you kind of look at that text when you get copies of that text, some of those aphorisms will kind of pop out at you probably. You get the idea that Chikawa had a, quite a good understanding of human nature and the kind of things we think about and think of doing and maybe should not do. So they're quite short and pithy and able to be memorized. So some of, them, uh, some of those aphorisms you can use as reflections in meditation. And others, you know, hopefully they'll just kind of, as, you, as they strike you, as you memorize them, they'll pop into your mind just as you're about to do or say something. <laughs> There's things like don't boast. Um, <laughs> just one, for example. Don't expect applause for what you're doing spiritually. You're things like that. So when you, you, know, you, can, you think, hmm, <laughs> I did that well, <laughs> uh, in, in a sort of egocentric kind of way, maybe that aphorism will pop into your mind and you'll think, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe I can just be generous without making a big display of it. So it's quite good to have uh, the, the pithy aphorisms and sayings. So the, the teaching, the mind training teaching, has its origins deep in Mahayana Buddhism, but they became, through Chikawa, very, very well known in Tibet. It's a very common teaching in Tibet. And there are a great many commentaries, I'm sure, if you look, if you Google seven-point mind training, you'll find lots and lots of commentaries and references to them. So some of the great commentators on the mind training, Tsongkhapa, Jamyon Kontro, more recently Dilga Kentse Rinpoche, one of Bante's teachers, Trungpa, Alan Wallace, Tony Chodron, lots and lots of books on the mind training. And now you've got me. <laughs> so this is a text that I have um, been studying, as it were, and thinking about and trying to put into practice for several years. I come back again and again to it. Uh, so, yes, it's very nice to be here and uh, sharing some of that with you. So mind training, in terms of the seven-point mind training, mind training is a translation of the Tibetan Lo Yong. I don't know how to pronounce Tibetan. If anybody does, you can put me right later. But low means mind in a general kind of sense. Mind, attitude, thought, including heart. And yong means training or skill. So the low jong mind training is a training, a practice, a set of uh, aphorisms or points that bring about a complete transformation of body, being, heart into bodhicitta. That's its main purpose. But it has a special emphasis, the mind training teachings, this kind of tradition of teachings in the seven points, in the eight verses and in the various um, different ways they're written down. And that special emphasis comes in point number three, which we'll explore in a couple of weeks' time, which is to take adverse conditions onto the path. So the idea in the mind training is that, that there's no obstacles, there's no obstacle, no difficulty, nothing that happens to you, nothing that goes wrong, nothing that you can't use, as it were, as a basis for developing bodhicitta. In a way, it's a very... Um, quite a difficult uh, training but it's quite a positive training because we can tend to think can't we that oh, my spiritual practice is going so well and then there's an obstacle or a hindrance or something happens which I didn't expect and uh, you know it throws us off the path as it were but the mind training sees things differently from that everything that arises you can transform in some way or other into bodhicitta and we'll explore that much more deeply in a couple of weeks time so that's its special emphasis and that special emphasis is very much related to developing the perfection of wisdom, shanti. And obviously, uh, the development of, uh, uh, sorry, development of patience, the development of patience or shanti is very much part of the bodhisattva path, one of the six perfections. 
So there's a very strong and special emphasis in the mind training. And we can go right back to the Buddha who said, there's no evil like hatred, there's no austerity or training like patience. So we'll explore patience later. So to give you an overview of the seven points, uh, the seven points are, well, they're preceded by a homage and they're uh, concluded by a dedication of merits. But the first point is first training the preliminaries. So first of all, the idea that you need some kind of preparation, some kind of preliminary practice, some kind of foundation for what follows on. So first, training the preliminaries. Secondly, the actual teaching. Second point is the actual teaching. Train in bodhicitta. Train in the two kinds of bodhicitta, relative and absolute, (coughs) through a series of reflections and through the practice of tonglen. So that's the main point of the text, to develop bodhicitta. Thirdly, take all adverse conditions onto the path, all difficulties, transform all difficulties into bodhicitta. Fourthly, condense your lifetime's practice into a single essence by practicing the five forces or powers. So I'll I'll go into that in week four. But the idea of this uh, set of aphorisms is uh, that you're you're practicing for the whole of your life and you're practicing at the point of death. The fifth one is the evaluation of mind training. So you've come quite a long way through those uh, one, two, three, four points. And then the fifth point, you kind of look back or you look around or you think, how am I doing? There's aphorisms to indicate how you're doing, to reflect on, are you less egocentric? Are you more generous? Are you kinder? Are you more compassionate? And then the last two... Uh, the six and seven. In a way, they're quite similar. Uh, one is called the commitments or the promises or pledges of mind training, which has 16 pithy aphorisms. And the last one is called precepts or guidelines of mind training, which has 21 pithy aphorisms. So those, in a way, are things that you kind of reflect on, try and put into practice to support what's previously happened, to support your development of bodhicitta. So that's the overview of the text. And we're going to start with uh, point number one. The preliminaries, as it were. But before that, I just want to read you a little bit of uh, Chikawa's homage, the second verse of his homage. He says, you should understand the significance of this instruction as like a diamond, the sun and the healing tree. When the five degenerations flourish transform them into the path to full awakening so they understand the significance of this instruction as like a diamond the sun and the healing tree so the the point of the of the instruction of the practice of the teaching is to develop bodhicitta and uh, from some point of view it's impossible to say anything about bodhicitta particularly in its absolute sense it's a state of mind beyond subject and object beyond all concepts Uh, It's completely open, it's full of spontaneous compassion. So often it's kind of praised and lauded in terms of uh, metaphors, symbols, images. So it's like a diamond, it's like the sun, it's like a healing tree. So a diamond is the most precious gem uh, that you can find. And uh, a diamond, the most precious gem, fulfills all our needs, (coughs) fulfills the needs of all sentient beings. It's so... so, um, has so much wealth in it that can fulfil all our needs. 
the sun removes all darkness. So all the darkness of ignorance is removed by the sun. The sun rises, darkness recedes. The healing tree removes all sickness. So these are images for the bodhicitta and what they can uh, bring about in the lives of ourselves and uh, other beings. And in the commentary it says, you only need a little bit, you only need a little diamond. <laughs> you know, a little bit of diamond can be very, very precious and worth a great deal and can actually kind of bring about, fulfill your needs. One ray of sunlight, uh, you know, into the darkness has an effect. One tiny leaf of a healing tree has an effect. So you only need a little bit of those very positive uh, images. So a little bit of bodhicitta, a little bit of that transcendent mind can have a huge effect on our lives. So next he says, when the five degenerations flourish, transform them into the path to full awakening. So it seems that Chikawa, uh, what did I say, was 12th century Tibet, uh, had a sense that the times were not good. It was degenerating times. So it's interesting to read them and see how we might feel about what he thought were degenerations in his own time. Because we can look around the world today, can't we, and think, in some ways there's lots of great things in the world, but we can also look around the world and think, you know, things are pretty perilous, aren't they? Pretty parlous. So his list of degenerations, the five degenerations, were that the times are vicious, beings are in a crude state, they have a short lifespan, <laughs> superficial spiritual vision and a predominance of delusion. So we might, we might come up with our own five degenerations. But what he says is, when the five degenerations flourish, however we see them, transform them into the path to full awakening. So again, you've got that emphasis on however difficult things are, you know, in, in, in those difficulties is the possibility of transformation. So he makes that point again very early on. So, okay, point number one, first train in the preliminaries. Now, this is all Chikawa says. He is very pithy sometimes. That's his first point, first train in the preliminaries. He doesn't say what they are, <laughs> but fortunately Atisha does. <laughs> Atisha's verse is a little bit more um, poetic, and he says, By the gracious Lama's blessings, knowing how hard to obtain and how easily destroyed is this precious human life, in all my actions, according to their karmic effect, May I try to do what is right and avoid what is wrong and develop a genuine determination to be free from sangsara as I train in the preliminaries. So knowing how hard to obtain and how easily destroyed is this precious human life, in all my actions according to the karmic effect, may I try to do what is right and avoid what is wrong and develop a genuine determination to be free from sangsara as I train in the preliminaries. So they, they may ring bells for you. The preliminaries in most of the mind training um, teachings as expressed are the four mind turnings. What's called the four mind turnings, the four reminders, the four ordinary preliminaries, the four thoughts that turn the mind or heart. So you may well be familiar with these. Again, these are often studied and reflected upon. So they turn the mind towards the Dharma. That's their purpose. And they are this precious human life or birth, number one, impermanence and death, number two, karma and karma vipaka, con karma actions and their consequences, number three, and the defects or faults of sangsara, number four. So these are reflections that you engage in, a whole series of reflections to turn your mind towards the Dharma. 
Now, they're called sometimes preliminaries or foundations, but they're not, uh, as you can see, I think, if you just get a sense of what's involved in those preliminary teachings, they're not preliminaries or foundations in the sense that you can just kind of do them and uh, that's it, you've done them, and you move on to the profound next step, which is to develop absolute bodhicitta. Uh, They contain an enormous wealth of dharma. This precious human birth is um, full of reflections, impermanence and death, karma and karma vipaka, enormous uh, amount of teaching, the effects of sangsara, reflecting on sangsara. So they contain within them basic, crucial, foundational dharma that we need to keep reflecting on. Not just one week and then we'll move on. So I wanted to use uh, the poem that was read at the beginning of the talk as a basis because uh, this, this teaching, the seven-point mind training, seven-point mind training, four reminders, 59 pithy aphorisms, you can get a bit caught up in numbers and lists. So it's nice to have a bit of poetry as, a, as, a, as an antidote, as it were. So I wanted to use the poem that um, was read uh, as a basis for exploring these four mind turnings. And again, it's a poem I think we're very, very familiar with. There's a T-shirt, isn't there? There used to be a T-shirt with it on the back. of. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we know it very well. But nevertheless, it's a very beautiful poem and it's very, um, very lovely images in it, but it's also expressive of some very profound dharma. So the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. <clears throat> The human form is one with difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know is the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore set your goal. Make use of every day and night to achieve it. So you can take away a copy of the poem when you go and uh, maybe use it in your reflections memorize it using your reflections over the week so first of all uh, the first fan- the first uh, reminder or foundation is precious human birth so the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest gem cherish your body it is yours this one time only it's a very very positive isn't it very very positive emphasis on Human birth, human life, human consciousness, human existence, that's what it's talking about. Very, very positive. And sometimes I think we have an impression or there's an impression that people have of Buddhism that it's it's a bit down on the body. Uh, But you have to see it in the whole kind of context of the Dharma. And this is is a very, very positive uh, approach to human life, human existence, human body. And that's because our human body, our human birth, our human existence, our human consciousness is the basis is the vehicle for the gaining of enlightenment or of awakening. Without this, what what does it say in that Zen, uh, this very body is the lotus paradise, this very body, no, this very place is the lotus paradise, this very body is the Buddha, you know, if not here, where, if not us, who? So here, starts here, uh, to have a human birth, a human body, a human consciousness is incredibly fortuitous, it's the basis, it's the vehicle for our growth, our development and our ultimate awakening. It's not just being born a human being with a human consciousness, in a rudimentary sense, having a human life. Uh, the precious human birth is a, pre- is a human life consciousness existence with eight freedoms and ten endowments and the three kinds of faith. So it's a very particular take on human life. There's a specific word for it in Tibetan called delyo, which means this precious human life 
with its freedoms, with its endowments, with its capacity for faith. So when you're reflecting on the precious human birth, uh, in traditional text you're given a list of the eight freedoms and the ten endowments and the three kinds of faith. So I want to give you the traditional uh, versions of these, but in your own reflections uh, you can find a way to do it that's kind of maybe more uh, accessible in the moment. I could give you some ideas. <coughs> so first of all, this precious human birth is a birth existence, uh, life um, sometimes it's called um, life as a free and fortunate human being the working basis is a life with freedom with the eight freedoms uh, so freedom uh, again is a very you know if you say the word freedom it kind of gives you a, a feeling immediately doesn't it of freedom from all kinds of obstacles and fetters things that get in your way prevent you realising your true potential prevent you growing and developing so first of all, you have the eight freedoms. You're free from restrictions and obstacles. And these come from the Gardener again, in, in one of his texts. So the first four uh, are freedoms from being born in particular realms, in the context of the six realms. In the Wheel of Life, you have six realms, I'm sure you know. So you have uh, gods, <laughs> azuras, envious gods, Traitors, hell realm beings, animals, human beings, the six realms. So it's in that context. And um, when you look at the six realms, uh, four of those realms, and get this right, four of those realms um, the Azuras, the hungry ghosts, the hell beings, and the animals are realms of suffering. So they're just experiencing uh, overwhelming pain as a result of having indulged in extensive hatred that's the hell beings uh, obsessed by craving the hungry ghosts so they experience extreme craving neurotic craving they're obsessed by deprivation uh, the azuras who actually aren't mentioned in this but I'm going to bring them in can't leave them out <laughs> are obsessed by jealousy and envy uh, the animal realms are, you know, overcome by sort of sloth and dull ignorance the gods are overwhelmed by pleasure. No, no, that may sound okay, <laughs> but they're overwhelmed by pleasure in the sense that they lose their sense of perspective, they become complacent, they lose any kind of empathy. So four of them are, are painful, one is pleasurable, and the human realm is a balanced realm. It, the characteristics of the human realm in, in this tradition is that you have a balance of pleasure and pain, so you're not so overwhelmed by pain that you can't reflect or think or practice the Dharma you're not so overwhelmed by pleasure you lose your empathy, your connectedness with other beings you also have a balance of karma and karma vipaka it's an essential characteristic of being a human being you can uh, experience the effects of your intentional actions but you can create new karma new intentional actions along positive skillful lines the other beings in the other realms they're just experiencing the consequences of their actions so they've been involved in, say, um, mental, physical uh, actions of hatred. And they've kind of identified with those mental states, and they've, those mental states have intensified. So they're going along a kind of track of intensified, unskillful actions, and they're reaping the consequences of that. So this is the kind of tradition. So you're free in terms of the eight freedoms, first of all, you're free from being in any kind of hell state, of being overwhelmed by extreme pain or suffering. You're free from any kind of 
hungry ghost state. So you're not overwhelmed by any kind of extreme or obsessive neurotic craving. You're free from being in an animal state, so you're not overwhelmed or dulled by dullness, sloth and ignorance. Just being obsessed with survival. You're not born as a god realm, obsessed by pleasure. You're so complacent that you, you forget that pleasures come to an end. And you lack empathy, you stop striving for the good, as it were. So those are the first four. You're free from those extreme mental states. The next one traditionally often says, uh, you're free from being born in a border tribe or amongst the barbarians. <laughs> so I thought I'd give you the traditional version. Uh, I think this means that um, you're not born in a set of conditions where it's very, very difficult to practice the Dharma. There isn't a foundation of culture or civilization or ethical sensitivity. Uh, you're not born in, in a place where it's lawless, uh, where there's no stability, there's no culture. You, know, you can imagine those kind of worlds, states, countries, areas. It doesn't need to be a country, does it? It can be an area, a street, uh, a family, <laughs> where all those things are unfortunately <laughs> present and uh, it's very, very hard for the person to practice the Dharma. So you're not born amongst the Bulba tribes or amongst the barbarians. Uh, you're not born uh, you're free from being born with extreme wrong views which are inimical to the Dharma so again you might uh, have been born into or grown up into a set of conditions uh, where right views are just not they're not the currency as it were Um, there's there's kind of very little understanding that actions have consequences in a a way it relates to the previous one doesn't it Um, the, the closed mindedness around views, uh, there's no idea or no ideas that you, know, you can grow and develop as a human being. So all kinds of uh, conditions could be like that. <coughs> you're not born, um, this is the next one, you're not born uh, with your senses, your physical or your mental senses, so impaired that you cannot hear, reflect on and practice the Dharma. And you're not born, the last one, at a time when there is no Buddha when there's no one to show the way to complete freedom. So those are the eight freedoms. So I think it's just interesting to um, you know, think in your own life. Uh, well, what freedom, what, what, what is freedom? When I think of the word freedom, what does that mean to me? What happens in my emotions, in my mind? What kind of sense do I have? What kind of things in my life uh, do I feel free from? If I reflect on those things, you know, do they apply to me? Do I feel I'm, you know, I've got, uh, do you feel you're, well, you've got a human consciousness, you've got that balance of pleasure and pain. Uh, You're in a situation, you're in a context, a country where, well, it's not perfect, uh, you're free to follow the Dharma. You can find the Dharma, you can follow the Dharma. You've got enough uh, physical and mental health to practice. It might not be perfect, but you've got enough to practice. So just think about your own life and the freedoms that you might have. You might not have thought about your life in this kind of way and what kind of sense that gives you. It might give you a sense of relief. When you think about when you felt more fettered or more hindranced or more burdened and you know, you've come through something, you know, how do you feel? You feel relief. Uh, you, you, know, you feel a comforting joy sometimes. Don't you? you feel joy, you feel relief, you feel happy. And you feel probably more confident in uh, your future, in uh, the way your life can go. So freedom is a very, very important uh, quality of the precious human birth. So the eight freedoms. I'll say a little bit more about the ten endowments because they're put in more positive terms and I prefer that. Um, 
So the ten endowments are the positive side of the eight freedoms. So endowment is a you know is an interesting word. Endowment is someone gives you endows you with something, money, fortune, uh, gifts. So it, the whole kind of feeling of this, the ten endowments, is that you're you're endowed, you're fortunate, you have opportunities, you have advantages, you have resources, you have good conditions, you have riches, you have a well-favored life. So yeah, very 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 positive again way of looking at our life. So the first one, and they kind of they are, as I said, the opposites of the eight freedoms in some senses. So the first one is to be born as a human being. So to be you're free of those other realms, you're born as a human being. You're born with self-reflective awareness. You're born with the ability to make choices in your life. You're born with the ability to make positive, creative choices in your life. So the human realm, again, is very, very important. And uh, when we look back at those six realms and we see that um, the other realms are kind of realms of experiencing uh, the painful or not very helpful, pleasurable results of previous actions. And the human realm is this balanced realm, this balance of pleasure and pain, this balance of action and consequences. And you can, you do have a choice. You can create your life as you would wish. Uh, I think the crucial point about the human realm is it's a realm that has perspective. In all those other realms, when you're in those extreme states, you've lost perspective. You're just very much identifying with the mental state that you're in and that identification with the mental state that you're in intensifies that mental state and we know that don't we get hooked up on something and uh, you know we go with that and uh, we get more kind of upset or more angry or whatever and it takes us along the whole kind of track and the whole world seems as though that's the world that's how it is that's how it is for you and you lose your sense of perspective I think that's a sort of crucial point really so in the human realm, a truly human realm, it's not that you don't, or we don't, I don't, experience hatred, jealousy, envy, craving, uh, dull ignorance as a desire for food, sex and sleep. Uh, that's all of them, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> not that you don't experience you know, that and all the kind of many manifestations of those unskillful mental states. But um, if you can experience those mental states and if you can hold them in your awareness, if you can hold them in a broader perspective of awareness, uh, either they kind of disappear, ideally, this kind of, you know, you, you, you realise that you're feeling hatred and you kind of have that sense of awareness. Sometimes that just kind of disappears like the cloud in the sky. <coughs> or you kind of sit with that experience and you kind of, you reflect on the experience, you bring awareness to that. Why? You know, why are you having that feeling? What's happened? What's going on? So if you do that, if you don't identify, if you don't kind of follow the track so it takes you further and further away from your awareness, you have a sense of perspective on your life. This is a point that Bante <coughs> made in um, one of his seminars on the Three Jewels on, the, on human existence. That the, the crucial point about the human realm as opposed to the other realms is this sense of perspective. If you maintain your awareness, you maintain your perspective. And he says in that perspective... It's the beginning of the seeds of wisdom. So it fits in quite nicely with panoramic awareness <laughs> in Verochina. It's the beginning of a panoramic awareness, a free awareness that includes all your experience but doesn't identify with it. So that's very uh, important. So following on with the, the endowments, the riches, uh, so again, you're born in what's sometimes called a central country. You're born 
somewhere that supports your spiritual practice. You're born in a country, again, however imperfect, whatever we think about this country in which we live, its government, all kinds of things that happen in it, nevertheless, we are free to practice the Dharma. And that's a very great uh, endowment or gift. Uh, that, that doesn't happen all over the world. We know that, don't we? We can just get on a tube and come to a meditation class. We don't have to do that in secret. We don't have to do it underground. We can read Dharmic books, we can meditate, we can go on retreat, we can do all those things. We're completely free to do that in this country, however imperfect. So that is fantastic. So you reflect of that, that we are free to do that at this point in time. <laughs> we have uh, enough mental, physical health to reflect, understand and put the Dharma into practice. Again, it may not be perfect. And I think these days... Um, the, uh, one of the, the freedom is, is not very kind of politically correct it says you're, you're free from being born as a senseless fool which is not very nice is it <laughs> I'll tell you that one <laughs> um, yeah I said in the, in the, in the time of Chikawa uh, you know, if you were born uh, with, with your senses impaired it would be very very difficult uh, for you to practice the Dharma um, these, these days you know, uh, we're so much more um, there's so, many, so much more on offer isn't it for people with, with sense impairments, with you know, hearing aids and uh, braille and all kinds of things. So you know, people can uh, come in contact with the Dharma. Um, one commentator on, on this uh, says that actually what it means is that uh, you're so mentally impaired that there's no chance at all that you could understand the Dharma. So you know, some people take this as quite an uh, extreme uh, impairment. But we're, we have our senses. Um, they may not be perfect, we have a certain amount of health and we can practice. The next one is a little bit different from the Eight, eight Freedoms. It says we're, we, we don't have extre- an extreme karmic burden. Uh, so this traditionally has said that you, we haven't committed the five heinous crimes. Killing a Buddha, wounding an Arahant, killing our mother or father, causing a schism in the Sangha. So probably none of us this life have done those things. <laughs> shouldn't generalise. <laughs> uh, anyway, we can look at this in the sense of, well, obviously, if, um, if, we, if we came to the Dharma um, as a very, very positive person, that would be a great endowment and, and enrichment. We could kind of take to the Dharma very easily. Some people are like that, aren't they? Some people seem to have had good luck, karma, merit. That, that, you know, that's the way they meet the Dharma. And also you find people like that in the scriptures who just kind of seem to have not really done anything unskillful. Their minds are completely open and clear. So when they meet the Dharma, it's a good fit. Now, I don't know about you lot. <laughs> that wasn't my experience. <laughs> so even if you know, one has done unskillful things out of ignorance before one came in contact with the Dharma, uh, anyway, the Dharma itself is a purifying agent, isn't it? Meditation practice purifies one. You realise what you did then uh, in a different context. You can... Uh, confess, you can practice the precepts, all your practice, all the skillful practice that you do purifies you and, and you can let go, you can let go of the effects of unskillful actions that you did in the past. Uh, and also we've got uh, Minarepa and Angulimala in the tradition, haven't we? Both of whom were murderers who uh, turned their lives around. So that's possible. But if you, if you came along to the Dharma and you, you, know, you were very open and free, with, you hadn't really done anything that unskillful, then well, that's great. That's a great endowment and gift for you. 
And then the last of the first five is we have a capacity for faith. This is very, very important as a human being, that not only we have all the other freedoms and endowments, but we have an openness. When we, when we do meet the Dharma, we respond. I mean, all of you, you wouldn't be here unless you've met the Dharma in some way or other, a person, a book, a meditation class, a video, a lecture, whatever, and something happened to you, something opened. So you have a capacity for faith that enables you to, to respond. So then there's had to be five uh, external or circumstantial uh, endowments uh, that were born in the time of a Buddha, the Buddha Shakyamuni. Not only that, but he taught the Dharma. Not only that, but that Dharma is still alive. 2,500 years plus later, the Dharma is still alive. Not only that, but that Dharma is being followed and put into practice by live human beings here and now in this very room. So that's uh, very, very important. So you could have all those other freedoms and endowments, but if you were born in a time without a Buddha, uh, you, you might wonder about that, but I'll explain that in a minute, uh, then there's no way, no one's shown the way to complete truth or realisation. So Buddhism has uh, a big uh, time-space context. There's no end to time, there's no end of space. So time goes back, aeons and aeons and aeons and aeons. Uh, in its cosmology and traditionally there are said to be aeons when no Buddha appeared and this is firmly based on the teaching of conditionality when the conditions are right the fruit will appear as it were so even for a Buddha to appear in the world even for Shakyamuni to appear in the world the conditions needed to be right to support him and enable him to teach so it's said that there are aeons without Buddhists you can, I don't know what you think about that but that's the tradition uh, so but you could think well uh, the Buddha did live 2,500, it's a long time ago, 2,500 years ago, and you know, his teachings are still available today. I've come in contact with those teachings, that's really something, isn't it? Uh, in the myth, you know, when he realised enlightenment, he did have this moment, didn't he, where he thought, I don't know if I can express this to ordinary human beings, that kind of moment, uh, and then you know, there's a story around that, and he decides he will teach the Dharma. There are beings, he can see with his divine eye, there are beings with little dust who will understand the teaching. So not only did he realise the truth, but he, out of compassion, taught the Dharma for sentient beings. And not only that, but 2,500 years later, the Dharma is alive in the West, which is fantastic. It's been brought to the West in the last hundred odd years. Alive and kicking. And not only that, it's not just in books, it's not just in translations, it's being put into practice by people now, ordinary human beings living today, living here and now. So that's very, very important. We can reflect on our good fortune in being part of that. <clears throat> so the last one is we can we reflect the conditions are favourable. I have a teacher, I have teachings, and I have support from spiritual friends. I have a sangha. I've come across all that. So when we studied this, I studied this many years ago with Sangha Action, a seminar from the Dual Ornament, and we went through the eight freedoms, the ten endowments, and uh, he said, well, just, just think about them in the traditional sense. And actually, you've got all that. You've got all that here and now. You're two-thirds of the way there. Now, I didn't ask him where there was <laughs> at the time, I realised. But he said, I remember that regularly, you're two-thirds of the way there, whether that meant stream entry or enlightenment, I don't really know. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. I think what he was saying was you have such uh, a good foundation, you have such tremendous resources, you have such a lot going for you. You know, don't, um, 
reflect on that, don't minimise that. And I think this is, the endowments in particular, I think, very, very positive set of uh, reflections because we are prone, aren't we, uh, <laughs> generalised, a little bit prone, aren't we, to um, both looking at ourselves and looking at conditions to, to see what's lacking. I'm not any good at that, I can't do that. I'm not that good at that, I'm not that great at that. And uh, this lot of people, you know, they're all right, but, you know, it's not perfect and, you know, this goes on and that goes on. We can so easily kind of focus on that. It's not that that's not true, that, you know, one has imperfections and the situation around one has imperfections, it's not perfect. But it's where you place your emphasis, isn't it? If you place your emphasis on what you've got, what does that do for you? I don't mean to sort of um, ignore faults and failings in a sort of Pollyanna kind of way, but where you place your emphasis, if you place your emphasis on what you've got going for you, if you reflect on these freedoms and endowments in whatever way suits you, what kind of feelings might arise? Well, traditionally, the feelings that might arise or will arise, and this is my experience, greater feeling of confidence, greater feeling of having something underneath you that supports you and around you that supports you. You've got support. You've got inner confidence. You've got confidence in the externals. Uh, feelings of appreciation. Some of what you um, have around you, you haven't done a lot to create. I mean, you can help create, but, you know, the fact that the Buddha taught the Dharma, the fact that so many people have kept the Dharma alive, unless it's you in a previous life, <laughs> you know, here and now, that, that's a kind of, it's come to you, hasn't it? It's come to you as a kind of gift. So appreciation, gratitude. And those are very, very positive emotions. They kind of open you, don't they? They open your heart. Uh, they give you a kind of sense of um, you can do anything. You could go anywhere. You can do anything with your life. And also I think appreciation and gratitude, when genuinely felt, lead to genuine generosity. You want to give. You want to give back, as it were. So you can see how uh, this is a teaching for development of bodhicitta. In the Dual Ornament of Liberation, it says something like, uh, metta is based on the memory of benefits received. Loving kindness is based on the, benefits of mem- of, uh, on the memory of benefits received. So there's a quite a strong tradition in Dharma practice to focus on the good, to focus on the benefits, as a way of engendering positive mental states. So in that chapter in the Jewel Ornament, you start by reflecting on benefits received. And because it's a Tibetan text, you reflect on your mother and what your mother did for you and gave you. Now, that may not work for everybody. <laughs> um, we also broadened it out that, you know, you arrive in this world and so much has been done for you that you can partake in. Language has been developed, pavements have been laid, buildings have been built. You know, you, you can reflect in any, any kind of way about <coughs> the benefits you've received as a human being and that kind of engenders gratitude so in a very short space of time in this chapter from um, reflecting on benefits received you go from thinking about what you've been given to thinking what can I give what's the best thing I can give the best thing I can give is enlightenment for all sentient beings so development into bodhicitta and first chapter of the um, Shanti Davis text of Bodhicharamitara, which is a text to develop Bodhicitta. The first chapter is just praising the Bodhicitta. By praising the Bodhicitta, the qualities of mind of the Bodhicitta opens you up to those qualities. So this is a text in that line. So 
yeah, very, very positive. The, the eight freedoms, the ten endowments, the precious human birth, the precious human body. And you're a human being with faith, with a capacity for faith. So not only is it precious, this life, but sometimes it's said to be rare. I suppose things that are rare are precious, aren't they? Uh, this is a traditional reflection. So you could think about that. Is this precious human life? Is it rare? Well, traditionally, uh, you reflect in terms of the six realms. So six realms, lots and lots of beings in the other five, not so many in the human realm. If that doesn't kind of float your boat, as it were, um, you could just look at human beings on this planet, can't you? Billions of human beings on the planet. Just, you know, scan the planet. What kind of lives, what kind of states many, many, many of those beings live in. How many of those beings at this point in time have these freedoms and endowments to practice the Dharma? It's rare in contrast. Sometimes it's said to be like a daytime star. <clears throat> Sometimes it's said to be rare like the turtle. You know the old story of the turtle who lives at the bottom of the ocean and comes to the top of the ocean every hundred years to take one breath. And what chance is there that when he pops up and takes a breath. There's this yoke floating on this vast ocean that he manages to get his head through the yoke. Pretty rare. Anyway, just reflect, you know, you know, reflect on the freedoms in the endowments and then think, well, you know, it, it, do I think that's incredibly common that everybody has that? Or if I really look, do I realise that actually it's not only precious, but it's not that common? It might be common in the people I know, but in, on the globe... So reflections on the precious human birth. So you can reflect on freedom, you can reflect on what you've been given. And just see what arises. When you take the poem away, I suggest you might like to um, memorise the poem or use it and just use the poem for a basis of reflection and see what happens in your mind and heart. Hopefully you'll feel more confident, more endowed, more resourced, richer, uh, appreciative, and so on. But then after all that, we go on to the second point, which is impermanence and death. So maybe, maybe you can see why the first point is, uh, focuses so much on the positive. And I think um, they go together. They're kind of in a creative tension because... Yes, all that is wonderful, and maybe you've never really quite thought like that before, or to that extent, and you feel, oh, wow, you know, two-thirds of the way there, <laughs> great. Uh, but, and, life is fragile, life is fragile, conditions change. You may have all this at the moment, but how long, how long is it going to last? So don't be complacent about what you have. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life, you should know, is the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into me. Very beautiful image. I mean, you might not think of your life as a little raindrop because, you know, life seems to be quite long sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> but in the kind of bigger context of things, yeah, it's quite a lovely image. Uh, so impermanence and death, the fundamental dharmic teaching. Uh, Sangharachita once said if you could reduce the dharma to one word... That word could be impermanence. Central teaching around which everything else hangs, as it were. Everything that has a beginning has an ending. Everything that's made up of parts falls apart. Everything that's conditioned ceases when those conditions cease. Everything that's born dies. The end of all accumulation is dispersal. 
the end of all construction is disintegration, the end of all meeting is parting, the end of life is death. So this uh, reflection is not to terrify us and make us go, oh my God, <laughs> death. <laughs> Uh, it's to enable us to appreciate even more uh, the precious human birth, to appreciate our freedoms and opportunities and not to be complacent about what we have, to cherish our body, to make the most of it now, to practice now, without fear or anxiety. And there's lots of images for the kind of um, fleetingness of life, isn't there? The, the, there's the dewdrop on the grass, the lightning flash, a raindrop, a cloud. So it's a preparation for death as well, I suppose. It's an it's a exhortation to practice now and to practice in preparation for death because death will come. And the mind training is a set of reflections, so it doesn't go into a lot of theory. Its, it, its aim is to kind of give you an experience. So there are three traditional reflections. And it doesn't beat about the verse. Number one, death is certain. It's the only certainty, isn't it, that we will die. And it's so hard for us to get hold of that, isn't it? Uh, it's very hard for us to believe in our own mortality. Even if we've been very ill, even if we've had a brush with death, even if we've seen someone die, it's still hard to think. And that's going to be me too. Uh, sometimes, you, you know, I say and people say, if I die, <laughs> you know, it's not if, is it? It's when. It's not if, it, if I die today, you could say, but it's not if, it's when. So this is the reflection, death is certain. Everybody dies. And just reflect that that's true, just look around at history, just look around. Caesar, no longer here. The Buddha, no longer here. Hitler, no longer here. From the greatest realised being to the greatest tyrant, ordinary human beings, they've all gone nobody lives forever oh, phone a friend yes there's someone <laughs> an immortal being out there phoning <laughs> Amragita <laughs> no <laughs> okay <laughs> yes everybody dies um, so people do have quite long lifespans sometimes don't they I think the longest what is it is it about 120 years that have uh, been recorded some secret valley of Shangri-La or someone was um, reported recently who lived till about 115, I think. But it doesn't seem to go much beyond that, does it, as far as we know? <laughs> if, you're, if you're a time lord and you're out there, <laughs> keep quiet. <laughs> yeah, time lords seem to live a long time. Um, yes, but everybody dies, everybody passes away. So you're trying to, with you know, on the basis of the previous positivity, kind of open your heart to just... <laughs> reflect on that, look at that, without going into anxiety and fear. Well, if you feel fear, um, try and sit with that. Just try and breathe into it. Um, but the practice is, in, is meant to focus the mind and give us a sense of positive urgency. So the only certainty. But the time and means of death are uncertain. So you have certainty and you have uncertainty. Uh, unless, of course, maybe you're on death row and you know you're going to die and how you're going to die. But even then, you probably don't know until very near the moment because you could die beforehand, you could have a reprieve. If you're told you have six months to live or something like that, uh, even so, 
you know, you don't know exactly when you're going to die. Sometimes people recover. Uh, you don't know exactly what kind of conditions are going to cause your death. So the time and means of death are uncertain. Uh, so you kind of try and sit with that reflection. And um, beings die at all points, don't they, in, in a life cycle? And we know this from our experience, our own experience, people we know, looking out into the world and seeing what happens. Uh, beings die in the womb, as babies, as infants, as young people, as adolescents, <coughs> middle-aged, old age, across the board. Just because you're alive today, you can't be certain you'll be alive tomorrow. Just because you're young now doesn't mean you're going to live till you're old. And uh, the causes of death are many. It says sometimes the causes of death are many and the supports for life are few. Um, in a way, that's kind of true, although the body does seem to be pretty resilient sometimes, doesn't it? But there are many causes of death. There's illness, sickness, infection, accident, earthquake, famine, fire, flood, violence, war. All kinds of things can happen. The unexpected can happen just like that, as we know. So sometimes it's said in this reflection, uh, be prepared for death like the Kadampa masters of old, the Kadampa masters of the school of Atisha, who turn their begging bowls upside down at night. Now apparently begging bowls were only ever really turned upside down when the person died. So they would go to bed, turn their begging bowl upside down as a reflection on death. They might not wake up in the morning. So that's... Uh, <laughs> it's a time lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, death is certain. Try and try and just kind of mm, lean into that uh, truth that death is certain, and then that you don't know when, you don't know how, you can't assume anything. The only thing that you can take with you is the Dharma, is the third reflection. So you can't, when you die, take anything with you. Uh, you can't take your body. Your body will go back into the elements. Uh, you can't take your possessions, however lovely they are, uh, even your family and friends. They may be there being very, very supportive, but the, the death journey you take alone. Now, you may uh, have faith in karma and rebirth. You may think there is an afterlife in some sense or other. You may be agnostic. Um, in, in a way, we just don't know, do we, what happens after death. It's like a tiger's cave in which all footsteps lead and none come out. So we don't know. But I'm sure that all of us, whatever we think or believe about karma and rebirth, uh, <coughs> would want to die in good mental states. We'd want to die without fear. We'd want to die without regrets. <coughs> We'd want to die without a sense of unfinished business. We'd want to die you know, with our quarrels, as it were, composed. We'd want to die in a peaceful state of mind. I'm sure we'd all want at least that or at least that um, so yes so the only thing you can take with you to that point as it were and perhaps beyond is the Dharma and that's the Dharma in the sense of what you've integrated of the Dharma what's part of you not what you kind of you know, intellectualised or understand in the abstract it's what's really part, become part of you so that you can take with you as it were, that's what you have, that's what will give you uh, the opportunity to die a peaceful, non-regretful, un unfinished, lifeful, <laughs> positive, peaceful death and take you uh, into your next life. So Nagarjuna says, many things threaten death, which is even more ephemeral than a bubble, uh, than a bubble of water full of air. 
How amazing is the opportunity to inhale after exhaling and to awaken from sleep? So life is amazing, isn't it? Life's amazing that we live. But take it moment by moment. The Buddha said, of all footprints, those of the elephant are the broadest and deepest. Of all meditations, that on impermanence is the strongest and most beneficial. So we have, don't we, a bit of a cultural obsession with youth, uh, plastic surgery, etc., etc., Botox, whatever. And death, although death is all around us, and it's in the news, it's on the telly, in a way it's kind of hidden from us, isn't it? We don't really, um, it's not very obvious to us. Uh, if you know someone uh, close to you who's died these days, I think people do go and again and look at the body, and that's a very good thing to do, to, to see death. But it's a bit kind of, um, yeah, excluded. So we're trying to open ourselves to the certainty of death. We don't know when. We need to practice the Dharma and uh, have an awareness of the immediacy of death in, in a positive way so that that uh, opens your heart. It's not something that kind of designed to close you up and make you terrified, but to open your heart in a creative and, and liberating way to make you more alive in the moment. This is the purpose of reflecting on death. And to not waste all those wonderful opportunities, endowments and freedoms that you have. Okay, so I'm going to do the last two quite quickly. Yes. (laughs) So karma and its consequences. So in a way you can see why this follows from the last reflection of uh, reflecting on impermanence and death. What this reflection is saying, and so the, the teachings on karma and rebirth uh, are, are subtle, profound, and detailed in many. So you could explore all that, but for the purposes of reflection, uh, we can keep it simple. So this is about uh, realizing that actions do matter. What you do matters for you and for others. Actions have consequences. So do we think that actions don't have consequences? Or do we think some actions have consequences and some things may not have consequences, hopefully, because we quite like doing them? Do we think we can act with impunity? Do we think we can get away with it? Uh, Do we think that? And and what do we think that about if we do? So reflecting on actions and consequences, intentional actions and consequences, and taking responsibility for our actions. So traditionally... uh, Intentional actions that are skillful, in, uh, in a skillful line, as it were, lead to more skillful experiences. Intentional actions which are unskillful, based on greed, hatred, and delusion, lead to pain for ourselves and others. That's the tradition. So, is that our experience? It's often more complicated than that, unfortunately, uh, because our actions don't always bear fruit immediately. Uh, the Dharmapada expresses this. You can do skillful actions and the fruit might come later. Uh, you can do unskillful actions and the fruit might come later in terms of regret or remorse or something else. So it's not always that straightforward. So I think what you need to do is to look back over your life and your practice. So look back over your life since you've been practicing the Dharma, however long that is, and just reflect, well, you've been meditating, uh, you've been developing friendships, you've been practicing the precepts, all, all kinds of skillful things. Uh, has your life changed? How has your life changed? Has it changed? How has it changed? Now, it may be that at this present moment you're experiencing some difficulty. Life might not be that straightforward or easy. Difficulties don't just kind of fade away. But 
looking at the whole stream of things, can you see that your life you know, is going in a more creative, open, free direction in which you can hold perhaps better difficulties, painful experiences and so on? Well, one would hope if you've been practicing the Dharma that that will be the case. But, you know, look into your own life and then you have a sense, you know, a felt sense, as it were, that the practice you've done, the practice you're engaged in, you know, is taking you in a positive and skillful direction. And moreover, you can continue to do that. You can continue to make choices and channel your mind creatively. In the teachings on karma, it's often said that habitual karma, there's all kinds of different kinds of karma, but habitual karma is one of the most important, the kind of repetition. So repetition of unskillful actions obviously takes you into one of those realms, uh, painful realms, but repetition of skillful actions meditating every day, you know, it's going to give you a head of steam as it was going to accumulate uh, and open up into something uh, much greater. So, yeah, just reflect on your life and just reflect on how has it gone? Is it going better than it was when you first started to practice? And lastly, we reflect on the faults of samsara. So this sometimes is, uh, people say, oh, I've got to leave the world and uh, I think that's kind of a bit of a mistake, as it were. Sangsara is not just this world around us, which has some very nice things in it, but it's conditioned existence based on greed, hatred and delusion. So you reflect on the faults of Sangsara, you reflect that there's unsatisfactoriness, suffering, dukkha, unhappiness in life. There's all kinds of sufferings for oneself and others. And that suffering arises because we don't see the truth, the true nature of conditioned existence. We don't see that things are impermanent. We've already reflected on impermanence back a couple of points, but we don't see that things are impermanent. We don't see that things are even insubstantial. So we operate from a sense of delusion that there's a fixed self, a fixed object, and the relationship between us and the object is often one of craving or aversion. And that sets us off on unskillful kind of cycling, circling in samsara. So we just need to reflect on the nature of conditioned existence. And I think some people prefer reflecting on suffering, some people like to reflect on impermanence, some people like to reflect on insubstantiality. In a way it doesn't really matter. Those are said to be the marks of conditioned existence. And if we (coughs) see that things are impermanent, we genuinely see that, we see their insubstantiality, that kind of frees us up from a kind of grasping or aversion. So we reflect on samsara uh, according to uh, Atisha. If I can find it. <laughs> what did he say? Uh, I wish to develop a genuine determination to be free of samsara as I train in the preliminary. So to be free of suffering, to be free in a way of ignorance, the ignorance that causes suffering, to be free of the delusion that doesn't see things as impermanent and insubstantial, to be free of suffering for oneself and all sentient beings. And what we trend, tend to do is we try and uh, make samsara, conditioned existence, fit our desires, don't we? That's what we try and do, which is kind of futile, <laughs> which is, well, it is futile. And we need to learn to kind of... Um, shape our desires to accord with reality, as it were. So I end with a quote by Chandrakirti. Uh, First conceiving an I, we cling to an ego. 
Then conceiving a mind, we cling to a material world. Like water in a water wheel, helplessly we circle. I bow down to the compassion that arises for all beings. So there's that sense of, you know, the I, the mind, the material world, the clinging, just carries us around and around in samsara with suffering. And then we see other beings do that as well, other beings suffer. And we want to uh, create this impetus, this bodhicitta, this desire to free beings, so that all beings, including ourselves, are awake, see the truth of reality, and are free. So that's what it means to train in the preliminaries and the foundations. <laughs> it's quite a lot, and I think subsequent talks will be shorter. Hopefully. Anyway, uh, there's some text here. So there's a teacher's text, if you'd like to take one. And there's a text on Sankapa's poem you can go away with. And subsequent weeks, I'll give you parts of Chikawa's text. I didn't want to inundate you with 59 pithy aphorisms all at once. And uh, just take them away, and particularly the, the poem. Just use it as part of your practice. Just reflect on it, or reflect on what you've heard tonight. And when we come back next week, before um, we go on to point two, in the meditation practice, uh, we'll reflect on those four mind terms after a short period of mindfulness of metta. Yeah, so we'll actually put it into practice here in the Shrine Room next week, but feel free to do that at home in the week. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 